Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time once again, broadcasting almost live from a secure back room at the old Arthur, Arthur Anderson offices. It's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King. And with me, as always, is our other host and my election day voting partner, Tyler Crawley. That's right. Ooh, Arthur Anderson. I'm I'm that's kind of that's kind of good. That's good. I'm going to give you credit for that one. That's such a throwback. So other than I couldn't pronounce it, it was a great. <laughs> and, and that was that was just for you because you turned me on to the uh, the documentary, the uh, the smartest guys in the room. How, oh, speaking of that, do you know, they have a new documentary out. It's called no. the Chi- it's called the China Hustle. Really? And it's What's about it? how it's basically about how um, all this investment money is flowing into China and it's all BS, like just absolute BS. And there's like these companies have no one working there. But when investors show up, they like turn all the machines on and hire people to pretend like they're working. And it basically it's like that there's this giant scam going on in China and that all this money flowing in there is just it's being wasted and that it's not actually going to anything. And it's this big scam and it's going to lead to like the destruction of the global economy. But it's it's called the China hustle. I haven't seen it. I want to watch it. I almost I almost bought it the other day on iTunes, but it's uh, maybe it might be on Prime, actually. I guess I think I saw one of my one of my subscription services and I think it was available. So, well, you'll have you to let us know. Out. But yeah, no, I definitely will. And if it's uh, if it's something you have to purchase like true millennials, let's share. <laughs> OK, <laughs> that's true. I think it is, though. I, I, it was either I saw it on HBO um, or I saw it like on Prime or something. But when I know, I'll let you know. I'm, I'm hoping to watch it pretty soon because, yeah, Smartest Man in the Room was a very, very, very good documentary. But Speaking of scams, actually, that's not maybe not the best transition. Uh, Politico, <laughs> surely, is, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, I got nothing. All right, Politico reports that House Speaker Paul Ryan and President Donald Trump talked on the phone on Sunday, and Speaker Ryan gave one final plea on behalf of anxious Republicans: please, please talk up the booming economy in the final hours before Election Day. Now, this is not surprising. We saw great economic numbers on Friday. 250,000 jobs created. They thought it was going to be 188. Beat the street. Always great when you can do that. Wage growth, the the highest year-over-year gain in almost 10 years. So the numbers were great. Ryan thinks this is how you will win the upper-income, college-educated suburbanites who normally vote Republican but may be kind of turned off by Donald Trump and some of his rhetoric. Not surprisingly... Trump sees things differently. He wants to energize his base in rural America and believes there is no point in talking about the economy while we are facing a border crisis. So, Kevin, with less than 24 hours to go until the election, should we be talking about the economy or immigration? (laughs) Uh, It's the economy, stupid, right? I think (laughs) I think Carvel's words ring true uh, probably 20 years after he first said them, Uh, because, yeah, I mean, that's the one thing I don't understand. And maybe they have some magical polling. Carl Rove is sitting somewhere understanding the big game plan. But I've thought that this election would 100% be about the economy. And it's not. I mean, or at least that's not what I see in any of the ads, any of the news commentary. It seems to be completely secondary to to immigration, which I think is strange being that I don't I don't really think anything's changed over the last two years, immigration-wise, but I don't know. Building that wall. They're building that wall. (laughs) Trump keeps saying they're building a wall, even though it seems like all they're doing is repairing the wall. We haven't started anything new, at least to to my my knowledge. But but see, here's the big question, because Trump's argument is that when he talks about the economy, 
and that one, the economy hasn't necessarily pulled so well, or I should say the tax cuts, which arguably were the biggest thing that Donald Trump and the GOP have done since 2016 or the start of 2017 was the tax cuts. But those tax cuts aren't very popular. So maybe that's one of the reasons why they're not talking about the economy. Trump also says that it's boring. He talks about it at the rally. People, you know, they they fall asleep talking about, you know, economic numbers and and you know how good the economy is. And he goes, Hey, listen, we fixed it. So now we gotta talk about something that needs fixing. And he's not entirely wrong because I mean, let's face it, we know that in politics creating urgency or in anything, anything you're selling, creating urgency is what you have to do. And so, you know, talking about something you already fixed in Trump's you know argument. You don't need to talk about it anymore. You got to talk about the thing that needs fixing, and that is our immigration system. Now, the problem with that is there's a lot of scholars who would say that our immigration problem is not a problem at all. In fact, it's never been better. If you look at border crossings, I mean, even this caravan situation, the the numbers have never been lower. In fact, to combine the two stories, we look at how many job openings there are versus how many people are looking for jobs. We need more immigration. <laughs> so maybe an immigration problem would be a good thing for the overall economy. But I get his point, And that is that people aren't energized. No one shows up, you know, angry or happy at the polls because of tax cuts. So he's got to energize the base. But at the same time, are you turning off those suburbanite upper income college educated voters we don't like the, the, the immigration rhetoric. Well, you know, I, I think you you bring up a good point because what you do have to look at are the single issue voters. And, you know, I, I many years ago, someone brought it to my attention that if Republicans really wanted to do something about, uh, you know, late term abortion, you had 2003, right? You had a Bush presidency and a Republican House and mm-hmm. Senate. You could have done anything you wanted to do. The same goes for Democrats. If Obama had really wanted to do something other than health care, which obviously they barely got through, then they could have done that. They had control of, of the entire process for a couple of years. So I think that there is some merit that politicians, not to, not to go down the conspiracy hole, but I think that they want something to run on. If they actually went there and fixed everything or did major single issue gains, then that segment of the population wouldn't be as energized to go out and vote the next time around where at the same time, I think they don't realize they're causing voter fatigue. I think that people, people get tired of electing people to go do something and nothing ever gets done about it. I heard this a lot with people about the second amendment, for instance, or uh, a, a plethora of problems here in North Carolina that they feel that the Republican legislature has just not done enough. They haven't gone far enough. So I don't know if it is intentional to try to keep people excited about voting them in year after year so that they can go fix those problems or or I, I don't know what it is. But, yeah, the, the fact that we're focusing on immigration right now is just it's it's confusing to me because it's such a hot button issue. And I think that as much as you energize the base, I do think you lose the middle. I think that when you talk the economy, when you talk dollars and cents and tax rates, you bring more people into your side of the discussion, right? I mean, isn't that where we get a lot of these sort of libertarian, middle of the road type people who aren't really super focused on a single issue like pro-life or pro-gun or anything? They're kind of reasonable on these issues. And and when you start to talk about how their personal finances are going to be impacted, they will go your direction. And I think that's exactly who you're losing. Now, whether or not that is 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 more or less beneficial than getting the base of your party out 
will be an interesting question. And I think it'll also be interesting to see here in North Carolina if the national issues do play a big role when you've got local issues that have nothing to do with the national issues. Here in North Carolina, I think it's all about education and teacher spending and, um, well, spending on teachers and, um, you know, these amendments, the, the, the judicial vacancies and things where they're trying to really rally up the play against the Republicans. A lot of spending has been going into fighting against the Republicans here in the state. And I don't know if that is going to play well with the local voter. If they're paying attention to national issues, are they going to go vote for local Republicans because they're anti-immigration? I, I don't know if it translates like that. I, I really don't. Well, I think, no, I don't think it does. Uh, well, not with not the way the race is set up, because the debate seems to be Donald Trump, you know, igniting the base, which, you know, Donald Trump's base is rural America, right? White working class. That's that's the base that he's talking about, at least from the information that we have. Not to mention, you know, I mean, it's it's you know, it's also a myth that it's, you know, only white working class voters. A lot of traditional Republicans are also considered within his base. But the issue is that someone who doesn't like Donald Trump in 2016 voted for Donald Trump because we needed we needed we needed somebody who could appoint so, to these courts. Well, Donald Trump's not up for re-election, um, and the Senate seems to be pretty solidly Republican. And, and arguably, some of what he's doing might actually be helping people like Marsha Blackburn and maybe Dean Heller and sort of these statewide races where where an increase in the overall electric will help in a statewide race. The problem that Paul Ryan is making and other Republicans are making are these House races. Where your House member, you're like, well, the House doesn't advise and consent for the president. If you know we put a Democrat in to check the president, it doesn't affect his ability to put someone on the court. So you know what? I'm going to do a protest and not vote. And so that's the problem. That's the concern that they're having is that there's no motivation for me if I'm one of those Republicans to vote this guy in uh, who's – you know, using the same rhetoric as Donald Trump on things like immigration, because there's no bigger scheme in an individual house race. The Senate's not up. And well, I mean, it possibly could be, but we're talking about these, these house races and Trump's not up. So the bigger things that got these Republicans to show up and vote for Trump aren't there in individual house districts. And I think that's what the GOP is concerned about. I think they're right to be concerned about it, Tyler. And and that's why, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on Election Day on Tuesday. And it really makes me think about, you know, what's going to happen afterwards. And you know what I'm really going to miss on Wednesday, Tyler? What's that? <laughs> uh, that, that was quite the pause. What I am really going to miss. I was being dramatic. I was being dramatic. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. that. It's all it's all part of the show, people. It's all part of the show. What, what I'm going to miss is the show of all of the television ads and mailers that keep filling up my trash can. Actually, I'll be honest. I do kind of enjoy all of the garbage that pollutes society during an election season. It's like really boring NFL games. At least there's football on the television. Anyway, did you know that 2018 is shaping up to be the costliest election ever? Between House and Senate races, there's going to be about $5.2 billion, with a B, spent on this election cycle. The 10 most expensive House races so far total $238 million. This is just, mo- just, just a bunch more money controlling politics, right? I'm sure it's just corporate lobbyists vying to keep Republicans in power. That's the narrative, at least. But actually, in those 10 races that I just mentioned, Democrats are outspending Republicans 142 million to 96 million. Tyler, don't you think it would just be cheaper to keep the same people in office 
it's not like these elections really seem to be changing policies too much. Well, I mean, we don't even, I mean, don't the Bil- Bilderbergs and the Bohemian Grove people and the Illuminati, don't they already, they already know who's going to win, right? I mean, this is all just something to keep us plebs occupied. The decisions are already made. We already know who's going to take office. They've already decided who's going to win what. It's like a wrestling match that we're all a part of. We just, some of us just don't know it's fake because they just, they're going to throw it at the end. The puppeteers truly know who's going to win this or it's already planned it. It's already the, it's already, they've already written the, the end of the story. Uh, but no, I mean the, the amount of money that we're spending is insane. And to me, what's so funny about the money that's being spent isn't even like how much there is. I and mean, there's a lot of it, but it's where it's going. I mean, the funniest thing about this entire race is going to be Wednesday. A lot of Democrat donors are going to be questioning why they gave Beto O'Rourke $38 million in the third quarter when he loses to Ted Cruz by eight points. I mean, that that's to me, that is what's so funny about these races is that sometimes money flows into races like that because everyone's like, oh, Beto O'Rourke, oh my gosh, he's like the next Kennedy and he's so amazing and we love him. He's not going to win his race. It's like the uh, stupid, you know, what was that one guy's name? John Ossoff in Georgia. They spent it was the most expensive congressional race ever. It was like $50 million and he lost. And it's like the Democrats continue to just throw money because they just, they believe, they're like, if we believe enough and we put enough money into the race that they're going to win. And here's what's the funniest thing is the Democrats are the ones that always whine and moan about corporate money and all this money going to races and the influence that it has. And yet their proof that in some races, it doesn't matter how much money you put into the race, your candidate's not going to win that district. Beto O'Rourke is a good example. John, Off- John Ossoff is a good example. There are other examples. Republicans fall for it too. Then some some districts, some states, it doesn't matter how much money, you are going to lose. And so it really highlights that sometimes I think a lot of this, fool- this spending is pretty foolish. I completely agree. And not only do um, do I wish that people would just drop the narrative that somehow lobbyists and Republicans and and the evil you know rich people are in the Republican Party because the numbers say otherwise, right? Either they spend the same yeah. amount, or maybe one race Republicans spend a little, or Democrats spend a little more. But more and more, it's showing that Democrats are spending way more on races. And I pulled a few numbers to make this uh, tie in here locally to North Carolina. And I wanted to point out a couple of little uh, bullet points here. So earlier this week, uh, Governor Cooper met with a billionaire who has already spent over a million dollars in North Carolina alone on Democratic get out the vote. Governor Jim Hunt, former Governor Jim Hunt, he gave $300,000 to the party recently, to the North Carolina Democratic Party. And then um, this one is one of the most interesting to me. Jim Hunt's daughter is running for a House district against uh, Representative Bill Brawley down near Charlotte in Mecklenburg County. That House race. Now, Tyler, I want you to envision this. A House member makes about $13,000 a year. Okay. That's with the part time. A little more than that. I mean, with all the per diems and everything else. But right, I, right. I it depends <laughs> on, on travel, but also a lot of times the per diem goes towards if they're up in Raleigh for four days a week, they might be renting a hotel room every single night or, or have temporary lodging, yeah. that sort of thing. I see it firsthand, and I know that they're not making away with much money when it comes to the, the salary for that position. Now, Jim Hunt's daughter has spent a million dollars on her North Carolina house seat. A $13,000 a year job you're spending a million on. So if you don't tell me that there isn't an element of, of this party politics that's about control because it's about spending as much money as you have to to get your people in office to then 
push your agenda, right? I mean, that's got to be part of this conversation. Well, I, mean, I think the, the biggest problem that you run into is, and this is the argument I've always made, is if you want to get business money out of politics, get politics out of business money. Um, and and I'm, like I'm not that. talking like just- I like that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm not just saying like deregulate everything and that you know government can't be involved in business. But we could do what that. What I'm saying is- well, we could, but I, I, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm libertarian leaning, but I also understand the limitations of the libertarian ideology. What they need to do is is get rid of all this lobbying that's required. There's there was a great article I can't remember who it was now over at the Washington Examiner, um, in which they talked about this is a Republican, Orrin Hatch, and him back in the day basically bullying Microsoft. And because back in the day, Bill Gates' theory was, you know, we're not going to get involved in Washington. If Washington just leaves us alone, we're going to be fine. And then, of course, they went after him. The Department of Justice went after him for antitrust violations and everything else. Now, Microsoft is one of the biggest donors, uh, biggest lobbying uh, uh, or has a huge expenditure now. They have, a, they have an office. They pay for I mean, it's just it's insane now. Uh, Jeff Bezos, as we all know, plays the game. All these companies play the game. And the reason they do that is because they, they sort of have to. Washington bullies them. And that's the reason these businesses get so involved. I mean, this idea that business wants to waste money on lobbying and politics, and do, it, it's insane. Like they'd much rather spend that money on R&D. They'd much rather spend that money on you know, investing in themselves. They don't want to spend money on a lobbyist in D.C., but they have to. They have to do it to avoid getting shaken down by Washington. And so – all these leftists who freak out about money and politics, the reason it exists is because Washington has gotten way too involved and forces these businesses to get involved. Trust me, you leave them alone tomorrow, they're gone. Those love, K Street will be gone. <laughs> like, it'll, it'll be nothing but, um, I don't know, strip malls. And it, all those lobbying companies will be out of business if if the government gets it, stops essentially What's the word I'm looking for? Annoying businesses. They don't want to do that, but you force them, they're going to do it. But so get it, stay out of their business. They'll stay out of yours. Speaking of elections, we're going to talk about 2018, the midterm or the early voting numbers. And the good news, well, maybe good news. We're going to find out about that. More than 2 million North Carolina voters cast their ballots throughout the early voting period, which ended on Saturday night. The state's all but final early voting statistics reflected a heightened interest among voters compared to the last midterm. Four years ago, 2014, according to the Board of Elections, 18% of North Carolina's 6.6 million registered voters cast their ballots early. This year, 29% of voters in the state did so. Overall, 2 million of North Carolina's 7 million registered voters cast their ballots early. Kevin, this is the eternal question when it comes to voting. Is it a good or bad thing that more people might be voting? Might be voting or early voting? Well, I'm saying is if early voting numbers are up, I'm assuming that general election numbers will be up. So overall, is it better if we see a larger turnout? I mean, well, it's it's funny you bring this up, Tyler, because I have had this great Tavern Voices article in my head for about a week now. And um, so it might be online in the, in, in the next couple of days or in the next couple of years. But the point being... <laughs> That I, I've been thinking about this a lot because you and I have always had the philosophy that you vote on election day. I mean, come on, right? It's it's the Super Bowl. You don't you don't play part of the Super Bowl I for two weeks coming up to the Super Bowl. No, it's a big event. It's one day, everybody in. And 
So I have some concern that by having so much early voting, because we're we're having more days of early voting this year than ever before, and and it, I feel like it's it's taking away the effect of what voting is supposed to be, right? I mean, if you give people two weeks to go vote, it's kind of like this is the most important thing you're going to do in your life for this particular year, probably for the next two years, but just do it at your convenience. Don't worry about, you know, taking a a trip on the actual day it's supposed to happen. And I understand doing maybe one Saturday before where in case you can't get off work, you know, a little bit of flexibility, but we also already have absentee ballots. There's ways for people to vote. And so for that element of the early voting, I'm a little concerned that by just, making voting so convenient and almost it, it takes away the effect of what you're doing. You shouldn't just, dr- I mean, people put more decision-making thought into where they're going to have dinner than whether or not they're going to vote in the election. And so I have a problem with that. To your point about more people voting, I I don't know. I don't know what to say on that because, I mean, the way I was thinking about it earlier today when I was thinking about this uh, NFL analogy I did in the last, in the last segment is that if you have people voting for the NFL player of the year and you only have ardent fans of the NFL, you're going to have bias because they're going to vote for probably their favorite team or player, but they watch the sport. So they're going to be somewhat engaged in who players are. And maybe if they're real honest with themselves, they might vote for the quarterback of their least favorite team because they think they're the best, right? That that might be a, a somewhat decent way of reaching the MVP of the NFL. Now, if you just say everyone in America should vote for the MVP of the NFL, are you really going to get the best player? I think that's absurd to think that way. So why we think that if we just got everyone to vote, the right decisions would be made is a, is a false narrative. I think there's no logical um, flow to, to that sort of concept. Very true. And I think one of the biggest the biggest problem that we face is how do you figure out who's informed and who's not? I mean, because you got people who are deeply involved in politics and they think Pizzagate is real. So like they're not informed, but they think that they are. And they and, and you would think that looking at their activities and go, man, they read and they do all the stuff, but like you actually talk to them and you go, wow, they don't know anything. And so that's one of the biggest problems is what's informed and what's not informed. It's that's a very difficult thing to figure out. But here's the other problem I have. This is the problem I have with early voting, is that when it comes to you, – you ever heard of the uh, game show um, – is it the game show paradox? I can't remember if it's the game show paradox or not. But it's, you know, it's, it's the idea that you know, it's the, the Monty Hall problem, the Monty Hall problem. And they did a great job of explaining it in 21. But the premise is, is that you know, the, the host um, you know, asks you to pick a door and you got you know, there could be a car or a goat behind it. And then he opens up you – know, so you pick one and he opens up either two or three and shows you a goat and goes, do you want to change your decision? And the argument is you always change your decision because it increases your odds because you now have more information. You know there's not a goat in two. And so now you actually have a 66% chance of making the right pick versus before when you only had a 33% chance. And they say always make, always, always switch, always switch. You have a, your odds are better. And the reason I bring that up is that when you vote early, you are putting yourself in a knowledge deficit because if you voted a week ago, you did not hear everything that Trump said this week. And for all you know, it could have been great. It could have been awful. It all depends on your perspective. And so when you vote early, you remove yourself from the equation. I remember there were Republicans who voted early in 2016. Then that Access Hollywood tape came out and they wanted to get their vote back um, because they were so you know disgusted by it. And then there have been other situations where people voted for someone and then they wanted to change their vote because they liked the other person. So 
The problem I have with early voting is that if you vote too early, you put yourself, even if you know everything to know, you will always know less than the person that votes on election day because so much will happen, especially nowadays, in between then and now. And so you, it's, it's always about knowing more information. And the more information you can have, the better off you're going to be. And so that's why I get it, you know, early voting. I understand the, 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 the attractiveness of it, but it also worries me because you're putting a lot of people in a knowledge deficit. Oh, I completely agree with you. And one of the things I look at is that you've got mailers still coming out. I got a mailer on Saturday uh, against the local uh, House member who's who's running for reelection here where I live. And it was a, it was a mailer comparing him to Bernie Sanders. So, you know, obviously they're trying to influence a vote. If I'd voted two weeks ago, I'm already locked in. Maybe I didn't have all the information or like you said, something major happens. And and so your decision can change leading up to Election Day. And I think I almost think that psychologically some people vote early so that they they don't have an opportunity for their mind to get changed. I think that there's probably some people who wanted to go ahead and lock in that vote and then just say, oh, well, I can't undo it because they're holding their nose and voting for um, the lesser of two evils. Well, it can also allow you to tune out. So if you're just getting tired of it all, you go vote and you're done. And then you see a political ad, change the channel, stop watching the news. Like, I mean, there are people that, I mean, literally just get fed up. And so they go vote and now you've done your job. You don't have to pay attention to it for a week or however long it is. And so I think that also plays a part where people are just like, that's it. I don't want to, I mean, listen, I mean, I'm in talk radio and in pretty much every commercial break, there's two, there's two uh, campaign ads running every single break and you watch TV and it's like every break, it's almost all the commercials. And so I, you know, people get tired of it and go, you know what? I just want to, that's the way they can tune it out, but still, you know, met the obligation of their civic duty, but that way they can turn yeah, it out. No, I agree. And speaking of some of these, uh, you know, some of these ads and junk mailers that keep going out, have you, uh, Tyler, have you heard about the voter shaming flyers that the NCGOP sent out? I just got mine in the mail today when I checked my mail. Oh, I haven't got, I got one, one yet. I got Maybe one. I'm on the list. <laughs> so for, for those who haven't seen it, what happened is the North Carolina GOP sent out flyers that had an individual's voting history as well as their neighbors uh, on a postcard for the last several elections. It's all public record, so there's nothing shady about it. And in theory, the idea is that they want to, quote, encourage voter turnout by saying, you know, Tyler, are you going to vote? Don't don't be outvoted by your neighbor. We need you at the polls. But what happens is that sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Apparently, there was one couple down in Harnett County, which is uh, – one county below Wake here in the middle of the state, and they were listed as not voting in 2012 and 2014, which obviously made them look bad. What it didn't note on the card, though, is that this family, the Duckers, actually did vote, but in Washington state by absentee ballot, because what happened is the husband was assigned to Fort Bragg and was actually deployed doing three tours overseas during that time period. So the couple says now they're going to be changing their registration from Republican to unaffiliated. Tyler, <laughs> is this kind of trick worth it to increase turnout at the risk of uh, upsetting just a few people? I don't, I don't understand who this encourages. I, I mean, it, it, I really don't. I mean, so if you're not voting, do you really give a crap? I mean, and the thing is, here's the other problem. Do you even know who your neighbors are? Like I got the mailer and I'm like, okay, like it doesn't list their address. 
It just says like these people near you haven't voted. I don't know who they are. I don't know who those people are. So what's the shame? There's no shame. I mean, I, they don't know who I am. And so it, it's, but I'll tell you if, you know, I saw my name and let's say it had inaccurately said I didn't vote, I'd be mad. And so the problem with this is that one, you're, you're shaming uh, people who might turn them off the Republican party and become unaffiliated. Now I still think they're going to vote Republican, but now they've, they've left the party. But the other problem is, is that I don't know who those people are. So it doesn't even work because I don't, I don't know who my neighbors are. Now, maybe other people do, but I think isn't that one of the biggest problems that we're facing in our society is that no one knows who their mayor, mayors knows who their and their neighbors are. And so I don't think it works because I don't know who the people on the list are. So how much, how am I supposed to look at them and give them like the, the stink eye when I say, I don't know who they are. So I don't, I don't think it works. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I think it also goes to the point you were just making about should we be pressuring everyone to go out and vote? I'm not sure that's actually going to make things a a better scenario. I I really don't. I don't know that everyone should go out and vote. I don't. I want to be clear. I don't think we should prevent people from being able to vote, but I'm not sure that we should encourage people to vote. If well, they're not, if they're not in the game, if if they're already not going to participate, let's not force them into it. Well, real quick, I, I was joking this morning. It was raining. I think you know, kind of up and down the East Coast, and I thought, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because it actually deters turnout. I mean, this has been proven that when it rains, fewer people go vote. And to me, I almost thought, actually, you know what? I hope it does rain because I'll tell you right now. So, so, so you have three kinds of voters, right? In this situation, you have ones that never vote. They don't care. They don't watch the news. I guess they watch E. I don't know what Bravo. I don't know what they're watching. I don't know how they're not paying attention to the news. And so they just don't vote. Okay, fine. They're just completely oblivious. Okay. Then you have like the diehards, the political junkies who vote. You know, they're, they're there, obviously. And then you have the voter who cares and knows enough that you should vote and votes. But if their hair is going to get what they don't. And I'm like, I don't know if I want that person voting where if they're like, yeah, I know the democracy and the republic's at stake. But I'm not standing in the rain for five minutes. And it's like, how dedicated and how much does that person really know? Because if they knew how important voting was, I mean, you got people in Iraq who like risk getting murdered to go vote. People in America won't even stand in the rain. So I was thinking, you know what? Maybe I hope it does rain because maybe we don't want those people showing up and voting if they can be deterred with a with a rainstorm. Like, you know, not even a bad one, just like a little drizzle. And they're like, nope, I'm out. I'm not voting. So maybe I'm not totally against that. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you. So what I want to wrap up with today, Tyler, is do you have any major predictions for tomorrow? I think the easiest ones we can go ahead and and try to throw some some thoughts out there about are uh, federal, you know, House and Senate. Are they going blue or red? And then here in North Carolina, what are you thinking as far as Republicans keeping majority, supermajority, House, Senate? What are are your thoughts? I think and this is going to be such a cop out. But just to be safe. Well, first, don't even listen to me. I, I didn't think Trump had any shot of winning in 2016. So my political <laughs> pro- prognostications is officially I got to like it's sort of like, you know, when you're in a video game, and you're getting beat up and you got to build your power bar back up. I have to go through a couple of elections playing it safe, making like safe bets uh, in order to build my uh, cred back up on making big predictions. So I'm going to be a, a just a big wuss over the next couple of election cycles to build my cred back up. So now that I mentioned that. Uh, I'm going to split. I'm going to split it on both sides. So I'm going to argue. I think that nationally we're going to lose the House, but very narrowly. I think it's going to be like two, three votes. That, if that, 
I'm really hoping it's like one, just because that would be hysterical if the Senate was closer than the or the House was closer than the Senate. So I think it's going to be like a three or four point uh, adva- vote advantage for the Democrats. We're going to maintain the Senate. I think we're going to get to 54. And then on the state level, what I mean by the same is I think, and I, I don't know which one, which I'm going to say Senate. Once again, the Republicans maintain the supermajority in the Senate, lose the supermajority in the House. But we still have majorities, but we lose the supermajority in the House, maintain it in the Senate. I mean, I, I'm I'm very, very I'm inclined to agree with you, but I think for the sake of keeping this interesting, I'm gonna say we keep the house federally. Oh, all right. And the Senate? And the yeah. I think the Senate's okay. a lock. I, I do. Um here, uh I mean, I don't think we keep the supermajority, but I think it's gonna be a strong, strong majority. In the house, in both, in, in both, in, in, or just in, the house, in both. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know because I think local races, in my opinion, are just so much harder to predict. But what I will say is that all of the early voting numbers and kind of ratios that I've seen, if you compare them to 2016, it's not really far off. And for Trump to win and Republicans to keep what they were doing here in North Carolina, I don't see anything that tells me there's a blue wave. I'll put it at that. I'm not sure. I don't that. think. Yeah, no, I don't think there is a blue wave. I think that. I mean, I think there's there's blue momentum, but I don't think there's a blue wave. And that's why, if you've seen a lot of Democrats are starting to kind of hedge their bets, they're like, oh, the ger-, all of a sudden the gerrymanderings come back up. Like for the last three months, I didn't hear anyone talk about gerrymandering. It was like we're going to win the House and we're going to win the Senate and we're going to take back this country. And now they're like, but the the gerrymandering is just it's so bad that we're not going to be able to win. So they're trying to like already make up excuses but so are the republicans as we started the show you know the democrats i mean the republicans are already kind of bickering like oh trump didn't talk about the economy enough and trump's like you guys talk too much about the and so they're already everyone's kind of hedging their bets right now uh which leads me to believe it's very very close yeah and i think next week we really need to talk about obviously what happens uh but also what that means though if there wasn't a blue wave this year after trump I mean, the first midterm is generally when when things don't go your or, or any midterm election is generally when you're going to lose seats after you pick up. Well, but the, 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 the first is the most important. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because 94 for Clinton, Republican revolution nine in uh, 2010 for Obama was the Republican tsunami. And so the Republicans destroyed the Democrats. And the only reason 2002 went the way that it did was because 9-11 just messed everything up from a political standpoint. And so if you're telling me the Democrats can't capitalize on the anger against Trump in his first midterm, they're going <laughs> to – I'll tell you, the Democrat strategists are going to get paid over the next two years trying to come up with something because whatever they got now isn't working. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you. So we will see what happens on Election Day. This has been the 2018 election ed- edition episode, whatever you want to call it, of Tavern Voices. Yeah. Um, you, you can find this online as well as uh, Tyler is, I'm guessing you're doing some live coverage that people could tune into on election night. No, no, I will be uh, doing some live drinking on election hey, night. No, uh, no live coverage. That's actually awesome. We should have done a, a live podcast tomorrow night, but <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. That might not, that, that might hurt my career going forward. So I'm going to, I'm going to stay away from recording equipment on election nights. That's, that's, that's been the key to my success so far in my career. I like it. I like it, my friend. Well, in that case, enjoy your election night. I hope everyone listening enjoys their election night. And, um, the next time you hear us, it's going to be the future and it's all going to be over. So 
<laughs> Possibly. Never know. You just never know. We'll see you next week.